Hi friends, welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. And this project is for you and I together to work through the whole Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. You're very welcome whether you're here for the first time today or you've been here from the very beginning. It's great to have you here. And we're currently, we're way into this. We're in 700 episodes in and we're actually taking our time to go through Old Testament, New Testament books. So today we're picking up where we left off yesterday at Luke chapter 9 verses 18 to 22. And we're going to look at a conversation primarily between Jesus and Peter. And I'm going to ask the question today and try and answer it. That question being, what does Jesus mean to you? So welcome, friends, listeners, watchers, to another episode of the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Once, when Jesus was praying in private, and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowds say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago who has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell anyone, and he said the Son of Man must suffer and many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So here we are in this passage, the question of Jesus and who he is takes center stage. A question with answers ranging from people viewing him as the Lord of the universe, to the Messiah, to others even just thinking of him as a lunatic. And our view of Jesus is the lens through which we gaze upon the divine and the refuge we should seek when struggling or afraid. The critical nature of understanding who Jesus is is central to our understanding of God and our eternal destiny. The critical nature of understanding who Jesus is is central for understanding one's eternal destiny. And it should emphasize, it should prompt in us an exploration of scripture wherever it may be, to try and get to the heart of who Jesus really is. And this passage in Luke chapter 9 is one of the best for doing this. Because this passage recounts a situation where, an instance if you like, where Jesus, whilst praying alone, queries his disciples, Peter in particularly, about first of all public opinions about him regarding his identity. He takes on board the various responses that are offered we hear things about people speculating that he's John the Baptist or Elijah or so one of the other prophets returned. However, it is Peter who steps in here and confidently declares that Jesus Christ, he believes, is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, Jesus, in response to Peter's acknowledgement of this, is he issues he accepts, he accepts it's on the surface, but also he issues a warning, a pretty stern warning, that they shouldn't disclose this information too widely yet. So we're going to think about what that means. He foretells also, prophesies, if you like, his suffering and his rejection by the elders, chief priests and scribes, and his subsequent death and resurrection on the third day. All of this information will be disclosed. 
Now, although this passage is probably familiar to many of it, the practical application of it isn't always immediately evident. It needs a little bit of digging around to think of what might mean and how we should understand it and apply it in our life. The brief explanation of the scripture that I'm going to offer today, my main aim is to try and uncover and give some insights into how this conversation can be beneficial to us, not only in our lives, but also in spiritual conversations about the Lord we might have with other people, particularly when engaging others over the critical question of who exactly Jesus is. Now, when it comes to this identification, there is clearly some confusion amongst the general population, isn't there? Some talk about him being John the Baptist and others come back from the dead and others have other views. The crowds, the general public's view of who Jesus is, is very varied here. As I say, some say, well, he's John the Baptist, re resurrected. Others are, t are specifically saying, well, he's Elijah, as mentioned in the Old Testament prophesy. That's in Malachi, by the way. That's one where Elijah would return before what is described in Malachi's account as that great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now, another group of believers sorry, another group of the public believed Jesus maybe was one of those other prophets from the Old Testament risen from the dead. So they're certainly ascribing some divine authority to him, but they're giving him simply the status of a prophet. So despite these various designations, so to speak, of what people think he is, the crucial point for us to recognize here as Christians that all all of these other views, friends, fall short. They don't reach or, or plumb the depth of who Jesus really, truly was. So while these titles attributed to him, some may, have show, may be respectful, might even say honorable in the sense that he's a prophet or a forerunner or a risen, a great man of God risen from the dead, they're failing all of them are falling short and failing to grasp the profound reality of his identity. It's a bit like Napoleon's famous statement that Jesus Christ was certainly more than a man, but the way Napoleon subsequently lived his life in that knowledge and that declaration subsequent to it shows us that even those who, people who can have quite how shall I say it, elevated views about Jesus, many, most still fall short in understanding his true nature and how it should impact their lives. In a broader context, this passage prompts us to reflect on how people today, everyday people we might meet in contemporary times, majority of them too, I would say, in my estimation, in no way fully understand the depth of who Jesus is even within the church, the Christian church sometimes. The common perception for many of Jesus is at best he is a great teacher and that, my friends, does not capture in any way the true reality of his divine identity as revealed here in the Bible. So Jesus approaches this very issue by going to his disciples and asking them two questions. The first he asks them, what do the crowd think? What's the public's perception of him? 
and the second is a much more pointed and personal inquiry about their own beliefs and what they believe him to be. In response, we see Peter here, always famous for his outspoken nature, very straight away declare you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Interestingly, Matthew's account, which we looked at a few months ago, says you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, not just the Christ of God, as said by Luke here. So following this confession, this this designation of who Jesus is in Peter's eyes. Jesus, well, his next step's quite surprising, isn't it? Instead of encouraging them and say, yeah, that's true, now go and tell everyone, spread the good news, he actually at this point warns them fairly strictly, commands them, in fact, not to tell anybody yet. Now, this instruction this directive might seem counterintuitive especially given the practice that at the moment he's out and about there sharing the good news to, to people he's out there preaching the gospel of the coming kingdom and healing people to authenticate that however Jesus at this point has a specific reason for being cautious about how it's presented to the wider public that, in other words, those who have not chosen at least at some level to seek him out, why there's a reason for caution in, in this going, in a sense, what we would call today viral just yet. The prevailing expectation amongst the Jewish people at that time, you see, would be that the Messiah, when he comes, would be a conquering king. They had taken one aspect of scripture and focused on that and saw Jesus or saw the Messiah as one who would come and would liberate Israel from their enemies and establish this thing as they saw a powerful political kingdom. Now, since the disciples were certainly at the point of recognizing Jesus as the Messiah, Revealing this truth about the true nature of his messiahship might have ignited some misguided enthusiasm amongst the wider population who had not actually spent time in his company and listened to the full scope of his teaching, shall we say. The danger lay in the people expecting, when hearing the messiah had come, not having seen or sat under his tutelage, so to speak, they would have expected immediate political reality change. In other words, it could have very well have led to political upheaval, insurrection even, driven by a desire ultimately from their, for their desire to be liberated from the rule of Rome. Now, Jesus was aware that his time for establishing the kingdom in that manner, in a sort of political way, was not what was going on here. It was not about, and that would not yet come. He wanted to avoid any premature accounts to sort of, well, I suppose crown him as a sort of king rather than a messiah of people, a savior of people's souls. The critical insight into Jesus's identity, according to, to how it was recognized by Peter, shown to us here, was that he was the Christ, the anointed one, the awaited Messiah. However, Jesus emphasized the essential aspect of his messianic role would be revealed in the coming days as what? As suffering, as going to the cross, as death and resurrection. And we see here in verse 22, he outlines that trajectory and that ministry. 
The Son of Man must endure suffering. He will be rejected by the religious authorities, he says, and ultimately he will face death, only to be resurrected on the third day. The crucial revelation given here by Jesus shed light on the reality, along with the complexity, of the Messiah's real mission at this time. While the people, the general public, they were anticipating, yes, a Messiah, a messianic hope it was, it was described, but they were anticipating the return of a triumphant king, the return of a king on a white horse rather than a servant king who would appear riding a donkey. So Jesus here is beginning to unveil the deeper reality of who he actually is to his closest followers. So like I said, this journey they're going to witness will be one that involves suffering, rejection, death, and yes, ultimately resurrection. And by instructing the disciples to keep the lid on this for now, for the time being, Jesus is preventing a premature and misguided uprising, probably fueled by political expectations. And we know from Rome's history just how exactly that would be dealt with. So instead, Jesus turns and poses two intimate questions to his disciples. That's what we've seen here. The first asking about the general public's perception of him. And the second, I would say the more important, the more pointed one about an inquiry into their personal own beliefs about who they say he is. That's what we see here in the verses and how those views differ when set aside the wider world's view. Our response, friends, when thinking about this today, well, in reality, should be exactly the same as Peter's. Our response should be, you are the Christ of God, the Son of the living God. The danger then, and the danger today, I would say, always lies in the expectation where the people overly politicize the gospel and they expect the gospel immediately to lead to immediate political change even upheaval driven usually by people's selfish manipulation of the use of the gospel to try and bring about political change jesus then as today is saying that that kingdom in that way with the rule is not an earthly thing that is a heavenly kingdom that will come and it is not yet come and in verse 22 onwards, we see Jesus outline the trajectory of this Messiahship. The Son of Man must endure suffering, rejection by the religious leadership, and ultimately face death. The crucial revelation sheds light on the complexity and the nuances of the messianic mission. What people often will do is anticipate and talk about a triumphant situation. Jesus reveals a deeper reality in the sense that we too have to accept him as the servant king, the suffering servant, be involved in his journey, one that will involve suffering, rejection and death in order to bring us to the place personally, intimately, where we know him as the Messiah. And by inviting the disciples to keep this information to themselves for the time, he's saying this is a personal journey that you and I need to be on together at this time. It's also interesting to note as an aside that when it talks about 
him being rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, three different groups here. In the original Greek text, what is described as a single article is used, so it ties these three groups together, identifying, although they're three types of people, they all come from one body, and that body, of course, in the reality of that time and that place was the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council responsible for religious and legal matters. And knowing that specific detail highlights the fact that the Messiah's suffering, but also his death, will be at the hands of this specific group of leadership who will play a very particular role in his, in his subsequent death. Considering this, understanding this insight, we can then connect this to all the other passages that affirm the necessity of Christ's suffering and resurrection as the only way to pay the debt for individual fallen men and women. In Luke 24:46, we will see again Jesus emphasize himself, emphasize very significantly that it is absolutely necessary for the Messiah to suffer, die, and be raised from the dead because nothing else is capable of setting man free from the debt of sin. And this, of course, aligns with all the teaching that subsequently will follow across the New Testament in the, the letters, the writings of Paul and Peter and others. A good example highlighting that, uh, pulling that all together, is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul outlines the whole purpose, method, administration of the gospel for it, saying that Christ died for our sins, but adding in, as according to the scriptures. In other words, what was foretold in the Old Testament in the sense that he will come, he will die, he will be buried, but he will rose again on the third day. All of this contained within the caveat that all of these things occur according as according to the scriptures. So in, in summary, Peter here, as an individual, declares and clarifies his understanding of who Jesus is to his face as the Messiah by, and Jesus in doing so, reveals the dual nature of his mission. Suffering followed by triumph. Suffering followed by eventual triumph, triumph over even death itself through the resurrection. And this nuanced, double-edged perspective presented here to the disciples, Peter particularly, will provide a foundation upon which the disciples can not only understand the full scope of the gospel message, but later build the church upon it, where they would be later commissioned to share this complete gospel with the whole world. So the first practical point of this passage I want you to get a hold of today is the power of starting a conversation about who Christ really is. That's the thing that will reach you and reach other people with the heart, the core of the gospel message. A good thing to do is to have a discussion and ask a question and maybe the question to ask, just like Peter uh, was asked by Jesus is, who do you think Jesus really is? We've seen that, we will see that in the coming stories throughout the New Testament. Just like Philip 
for example, in Acts chapter 8. He asks Ethiopian eunuch, who he meets on the road, who's reading the prophets, he asks him if he understands what he's reading. And he initiates a discussion with that person based on where they are at their point in time. He goes over to what interests them, what intersects with that guy, and asks him a question about what that means in light of the life and ministry of Jesus. And that's a very powerful and effective way to engage people and potentially lead people to Christ. It's a great way to break the ice. It engages the person in conversation and it opens the door for further explanation of what they believe and what our faith is. But the second practical point of this, what I believe is the central message of this passage, is about who then is Jesus to you? How much does he matter to you? What he means to you as an individual? When Jesus asked his disciples here, who do you say I am? And Peter responded by saying you are the Christ of the living God. It allows Peter to reveal that critical insight, that critical truth about Jesus's identity. He's the Messiah. He's the son of God. He's the savior. But more importantly, as for Peter, he is his. He is, is an opportunity to say he is our savior, our Messiah, the son of God. And that is the truth that I believe the Bible teaches we need to understand. That is the core thing we need to grasp hold of. That is the thing and nothing else that is essential for our salvation. And it's highlighted here specifically for us in this conversation between Jesus and Peter. And what I would say in terms of application in everyday life, in any form of what we might call, I suppose, personal evangelism, any point where there's an opportunity to have a discussion with people of, about things that matter, these two points revealed here can guide us in that approach. The way in which Jesus spoke to Peter and the disciples can guide us in that approach. Begin with a question, like Jesus did, a question that engages the person in a conversation about Christ which asks them about what they're interested in, where does that stand in light in, of the Christian message, does it align, does it disagree with us, but the, does it disagree with it? But the important point is to emphasize that the core message that we have is that Jesus is the Messiah who died for our sins, my sins, your sins, and that he rose again. And the simplicity of that message, the core truth that we need to get to, aligns with all these biblical examples where we see Jesus in conversation with his disciples and others. And I believe if we go over to that place, that territory where people inhabit and ask those questions at their point of need, at their point of interest, that is the most effective way to make that message accessible and impactful for those people we encounter. Sometimes, in my experience, it has enabled me very quickly, a shorthand, to get to the point where I am able to say to the person that the most important things they need to understand is the fact that Jesus Christ died for the sins of fallen people like you and me. Now, we can couch that, couch that in religious language or we can couch that in 
secular language, but the question needs to be the same. It doesn't, you see, really matter what the background is, where they come from, whether that person is religious or not, whether they've even heard about Jesus or not. The critical message they need to hear is that we believe that the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ died to pay for the sins of anyone, anyone who in their own estimation recognizes they have not lived up to the standard of the type of life that God would want us to live. I'll leave it there, friends. Two practical points, I think, to pull out from this passage in summary, in terms of equipping us for engaging people and presenting them with our if what we believe is the truth of the Bible. And the first is, I would suggest, like many things, why not try and be like Jesus and engage people in conversations by asking people questions. And the most important question we can ask is what is their understanding of who Jesus is? And the best way to do that is always to initiate a question, just as Jesus does here. And the second thing to take on board is, no matter what their response is, ensure as best you can that you communicate the authentic gospel message. That being that Jesus died for the sins of everyone. And the people who recognize that are not condemning other people because they're sinners. The core position we have is we are the unique few who knew, who know who really we are. We are the ones, the, the ones who recognize that we have fallen short and we are sins. It's ironic that it's meant to be a position of profound humility, yet it often appears in the eyes of other people as the opposite of that. So keep these two works and these two thoughts in mind when engaging in conversations about faith. And let the Holy Spirit work through you, maintaining that sense of humility so you, you can bring others to the truth of the fact that Christ's sacrifice is for sinners, that you yourself recognize yourself as such, and that way you might graciously, in humility, enable them to recognize also their need of it. I suppose the key to these sort of conversations is to be a really good listener. What is it they say? Two ears, one mouth. To be attentive to that person's interest, responses, needs, and gently guide the conversation towards the central message of the truth of the gospel was that Jesus died for those who have sinned, those who have fallen short, those whose lives have become entangled with things that they shouldn't, shouldn't be entangled in. And bear in mind that everyone is on a different spiritual journey. You too were on that journey at one point till you too were confronted with this same truth and given the opportunity to recognize your need of it. So tailoring your questions to where they can make a significant impact in the life of that person is the key thing I believe here. Keep being intentional in those conversations, but trust the Holy Spirit to guide the work, to allow you to present it with grace and humility, and then leave it to the Holy Spirit to apply it into the person's life. We're simply there to present and share the love and truth of Christ and what he's done for that and leave the rest to God and his Holy Spirit who we have, who scripture promises has is with us 
in doing this and is the one who will in fact allow it to be applied in the life of that person. Okay, I'll leave it there today. I do hope you find it helpful. sun's risen it's at that unique time of year when I can get up sort of usually record these between 7 30 and 8 30 in the morning and in the depths of winter it's too dark but there's a about a month in January where the sun is rising and it's not come round to the point where it just creates this huge glare behind me which within a month or two it will be you know what friends it's really great to be here with you. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for making the decision to make the study of the scriptures part of your daily life. Please remember that everything I do is free, copyright free, in the public domain, at no cost, at point of receiving it. A big thank you to everyone who's done anything in any way to tell people or share this message so that other people too can make the decision to make the study of the Word of God part of their daily life. I do nothing else other than this. This is my main ministry. All the bonus episodes, all the other stuff, they're great, but all of those, and even the people who are supporting me on Patreon, the purpose of that is to enable this, the main thing, the really simple thing, to help people try and understand the Bible a little bit better, not by dipping into it here and there in a little bit, two-minute devotionals, but an in-depth study every day that I'm able to do it to enable them and then the Word under the anointing I trust in the power of the Holy Spirit to really impact their lives. I just have to do this and be obedient to that and leave the rest to God. But I'm thankful, I'm so grateful for every one of you who've made the decision to join me. It's a real encouragement and to every one of you who supports this ministry in any way. So I do trust I'll see you back here again tomorrow and we'll continue exactly where we left off today on the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye for now.